Hello, thank you for listening to episode 12 of 60 Minutes With. I'm Dave, and today I'm joined by a guy who's, well, a multi-talented guy. He's an actor, a voice artist, a comedian, actor, soon-to-be fellow podcaster. The list goes on, uh, much like the list on his IMDb credits, 144 actor credits so far. Uh, So you can imagine from that we've got a lot to talk about. And a lot to talk about. We did indeed. We covered so many great subjects. I don't think I've ever laughed so much in an episode of 60 Minutes with as I did uh, talking to my guest today. Uh, we got so much to cover, we did naturally go over the 60 Minutes. So um, be warned that it's going to go over the 60 Minutes. I'm sure you won't mind because it's just packed with amazing stories. Uh, so many we couldn't even fit them into that amount of time. So I'm, I'm happy to say that he's going to join me again in a show in the future and we're going to catch up on all the things that we couldn't cover. Um, you're all in for a treat. That's, the, that's all I'm going to tease you with at the moment. And I'm going to shut up and let you listen um, to the great guest that I've got today. So please sit back, get comfortable and enjoy the chat as I spend some time with Peter Spellos. Peter, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Uh, Again, this is one I've been really looking forward to. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to sit down and have a chat with you. Thanks, Dave. It's my pleasure. You know, Wales is one of my uh, favorite places. I, I spent a little time in the UK last summer, and I didn't get to go over to Wales. But the fact that I'm de facto there right now makes me <laughs> You're here in spirit, at least, at the moment. Thank you. <laughs> I think well, the main question, really, um, for me tonight is, like, where the hell do I start? I mean, <laughs> you, it's, it's, you've got... Currently, 144 acting credits on IMDb, which covers your acting, the the voiceover work you've done, the stuff for the animated movies, your comedy work. You've got a new podcast upcoming. It's you know, where on earth do we start with you, Peter? Well, you you know, I'm just a fat kid from New York City who wound up following his dreams and got very lucky in in, in many respects. So, uh, uh, I'm 61 now, and I've been doing what I'm doing since I was 16 in one way or another and to have uh to be able to do that i think is just uh it's the gift that keeps on giving you know i meet amazing people all over the country and and now all over the world so um i'm i'm very grateful to have lasted as long as i you know as i as i have oh yeah and i'm sure you've got a lot longer left in you too that's for that's for sure (laughs) good good of you to say i appreciate it what else can get I love your Twitter blurb as well. I mean, that sums everything up in a nutshell, um, you know, about how you've morphed into Freddy Krueger. You've been questioned by Perry Mason and murdered by Lois Lane. I mean, you've done so much. It's absolutely incredible. You know, and, and I and fall into some wonderful franchises too, you know. Uh, almost, you know, you have favorites. But one of the very favorites was um, um, being killed by Lois Lane. Because I grew up in the late 50s and early 60s, and, you know, George Reeves was my Superman. And to actually, I, I, I used to sit in front of that TV, and Mom would put the dinner in front because I couldn't miss Superman. And then, literally, when I got to Warner Brothers to, to, to shoot this, I walked onto the Metropolis set. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I did was call my mom. And I went, Mom! Goes, what's the matter? You know, because that's what mothers always. <laughs> I go, I'm in Metropolis. She goes, I thought you were in California. I go, all right. <laughs> I'll explain it to you later. But, and, you know, so I, I, I fell into, you know, being part of the Superman lore, which, uh, I, again, as a kid from New York City, I kid you not, 
you know, and I'll talk about my mom later. We, uh, you know, she's going to be 94 in June. We put her in a nursing home and, and because she has dementia. And as we were cleaning out the apartment, there was a whole box of, you know, we didn't know what it was. It was, you know, stuff for Peter, you know. And I opened it up and, and Dave, my Superman costume from when I was four was in the box. Oh, my word. You know, I'll have to take a photo of it. And so my my love of that, so that, that's the story I'll start you out with. Lois Lane killed me, and I, I couldn't be happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, that's fantastic. I mean, come on, like, talk about living living your dreams. That's that's what it's all about, isn't it? It, it, it really is. I mean, and it's the one thing I say up front to all the listeners, if, and if you're not following your dreams, why not? You know, there's a great scene in the '60s. If not who, if not if not you, who? If not now, when? You know, and it's 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 never too late to to do this. Yeah, and I just kept following mine. You know, I, I didn't let a lot stand in my way. Um, you know, convention or people's beliefs or non-beliefs in me, because I know what I wanted to do. I wanted to be. Um, well, I'll tell you a story. Exactly what I wanted to be. I was in California and I had done a lot of TV stuff and the Universal Studios had me um, teach a class for them for uh, 10 weeks for all the uh, park employees who were entertainers and performers. And I, I'm, I'm standing outside before the class one day smoking a fag, which is, of course, something different in this country. But, you know, <laughs> um, and this security guard is you know, kind of eyeing me from the distance. And I'm like, oh, God, no, you know, I'm smoking in the wrong place here. And he keeps eyeing at me and wagging his finger as I'm coming over. So, you know, I, I put out the cigarette nonchalantly, and, and he gets up to me, he goes, you're the guy. And I go, uh, what? He goes, you're the guy in the movies, aren't you? <laughs> and I went, well, you know, no, no, you're the guy you know, with all those girls and in the movies and everything. And I went, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the guy in the, in the movies. And he goes, I knew you were the guy in the movies. And he kind of, he walks away. And I and I went out to teach the class. And I looked at the students. I said, I don't know whether you know this or not, but I'm the guy in the movies. <laughs> you know? And I loved that he didn't know my name because I loved that he recognized, I don't know, a presence or perhaps all the bikini movies that I had done with um, with Fred Olaray and Jim Minarski and and I became that guy, Dave. I became the guy in the movies. You know, you may not know my, my face. You, you may not know my name, but you'll know my face after a while. So, again, it's just a way that, you know, I'm the guy in the movies. is, And, and I'm happy to have that, you know, on my tombstone one day, you know. He, <laughs> he was the guy in the movie. He's, he's that guy in the movie, you know. <laughs> that would be great to have on it. But I mean, because you have, I mean, you've been in so many movies and I was looking just the other day on YouTube, there's a great um, little montage of, of clips of you throughout all different films. And I've, you know, I've, obviously I've seen you in lots of them, but there was ones I haven't seen and it was like, I need to watch that. I need to watch that. You can bring them all up and I'll fill you in however you need, pal. All right. I'm sure I will. <laughs> I'm sure I will. You talked about then, so you got killed by Lois Lane's yes, by did. Lois Lane. Have you any idea how many times you've been killed on screen? Wow. Well, you know, if you count the movie Sorority House Massacre and Hard to Die, I was killed about 17 times in those two pictures combined. <laughs> but I keep coming back to life, very Michael Myers-ish. 
you know, I, I don't know. Um, six to 12, you know, I, I start to remember the movie. Oh, yeah, I died in that one. Oh, yeah, I was shot in that one. Oh, no, he, he stabbed me in that one. That's right. You know, so it, it's a it's a badge of honor. <laughs> you know, you always hate when you look on the script and it's page four and your character's killed. But then you get the great, you know, great things like, I don't know, it's, it sounds silly, but being squibbed up and having, you know, um, holes cut in your shirt so they can ex- rifle explode, you know, 14 squibs of blood on you. You know, that that to me was like, all right, I, I'm in the movies. I'm doing horror movies and, and gangster movies. And I'm getting all shot up and there's condoms filled with blood exploding <laughs> in my shirt. And by the way, that's the only time you ever want to see a condom filled with blood. I assure, <laughs> I assure you. It must be so much fun then just to be killed on screen. It just sounds like so much fun. It is. And this one movie, uh, Hard to Die, which was the sequel to Sorority House Massacre 2, they had about 16 squibs attached to my body. What they do is they have you in an undershirt and they fill these condoms filled with blood and they have like a little electric charge on it. And I literally, they run the wires under your shirt, cut a slit in your shirt. So, it, you know, everything kind of just goes, you know, when it comes out and ran all these wires down my pants leg, you know, about 10, 15 feet. And there's like a crew guy chewing gum with a car battery, you know, with <laughs> two live wires waiting to, you know, light this thing when the director says, shoot. Because you, you don't realize how, how you're going to react, but I, I call it the funky chicken. You know, you just, you just, these things are popping and you, and there's a little electric on, on each of them. So you, you get shot. And then the director was cut and I'm like, oh, that was fun. I, I don't want to do it again, but that was fun. What's the most scared you've ever been then on the film set? Oh, it was a film set. I was going to say my honeymoon, but then, you know, <laughs> um, I'll tell you, it was also in that same movie when uh, I had a fire in AK-47, and the I'm not a gun guy, but this thing was like dropping a, a clip of 30 in six seconds. Whoa. And the bullets come out to the right, or the shells. Now, these are all, of course, you know, um, blanks, but I'm... I'm I'm ambidextrous and I can't shoot with my right hand. I shoot with my left. So I had to angle the gun a certain way so these shells wouldn't pop in my face. And you look the camera and everybody is in goggles, protective <laughs> gear, and under like, you know, the mats they put on pianos. Oh dear me. <laughs> and and the, for one second, I went, uh, I am so screwed here if anything goes wrong, because everybody's nice and safe, and I'm shooting the gun off. But it went well, and somewhere in a, in a box in storage, I have a picture of me all bandaged up, unloading an AK-47. That's about as violent as I get in my life. <laughs> it's on screen, I, you know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a teddy bear more than anything else. <laughs> that was frightening, to have a live weapon, and to have known that people in Hollywood have gotten killed from blanks before. Of course, yeah. So I I got a clip of 30 of them that are going off in 6 seconds. So it was it was frightening. It was it was quite frightening. Yeah, I think I'd be quite frightened in that situation too, definitely. 
But you know, all the all the women in lingerie on the set who were in the movie kind of you know it kind of makes it a little easier for you to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did you get into this in the first place? Then, what's the story of how you got into acting? Well, I, you know, I I grew up in New York City and uh, did my first play in sixth grade, and, and all my friends from PS one seventy three are listening. Hi, gang. You know, I, I did the Gilbert and Sullivan's Pirates of Penzance. And then in ninth grade, I did, uh, we moved up to New Rochelle, which is a suburb 30 minutes north of New York. And um, there's the funny story. I did a show called Annie Get Your Gun, the very famous musical. Yeah. And I had, a, I had a small part. I was one of the townspeople and the extras and the Indians. And there's this scene with, between Frank and Annie where the Indians are all over the place. And, and I played, you know, being the big guy, they always, you know, put me on the bench sleeping. And so the, the director directed us where she comes in, kicks me off the bench, and then the scene starts, and then she kicks me in the butt, and, and I'm to crawl off stage. And I'm 15 years old, mind you, so I, I, I'm scared shitless to begin with, and I'm trying to get it right. So she comes in, kicks me off the bench, the Indians scatter, and then she's supposed to kick me to get me off stage. Well, she forgets to kick me. <laughs> and the scene starts to go on and there's 250 pounds in the middle of the stage, you know, lying in a 90 foot proscenium. And I'm scared to death. I don't know what to do, you know, and the scene's going on. You can start to hear the audience start to laugh a little bit uncomfortably because there shouldn't be this big 15 year old lying in the middle of the stage. They have a feeling that this is just not right. And I'm kind of getting from the wings, like they're kind of waving me to get off and, and I literally don't know what to do. So in my adolescent adult brain, I think, if I move really slowly, <laughs> no one's going to see me exit. So I slowly start to reach out one hand, like, you know, the beginning of Chiller's Theater, and I start to slowly, and I mean imperceivably, pull myself off stage. And the more I, I slowly try and and snake off stage, the more the audience starts to laugh. <laughs> and and I'm crawling. I'm telling you, it's 45 feet to the curtain, to the edges, and it must have taken me an hour and a half. You know, <laughs> or, or what felt like an hour and a half. And when I'm about 10 feet away, two stage hands come out and grab my arms and pull me off stage. And there's like riotous applause and laughter. And, I, you know, I was hallucinating at that moment i didn't know what was going on you know but everybody kind of patted me on the back good job good job and and down in the makeup room later on all the girls were like oh you're so funny you're so oh that was so funny and, and you know how did you think of that and i thought well, and one i didn't think of that i was shitting in my pants <laughs> and two wait a minute if you're funny the girls like you uh-huh mm, so that's really the first taste I ever had of comedy, and had a. Um, I was cognizant of the fact that, well, number one, there was you know, girls who liked you, and two that, well, comedy is this is interesting, and I, I slowly became a, a student of it throughout high school, and uh, I tried out for another play in the Woody Allen's Don't Drink the Water. This was God, I don't know, nineteen seventy seventy one, and. Uh, I fell into a group of kids. So, you imagine, it's the early 70s. It's basically still the 60s. And 
you know, awkward. My parents were getting a divorce, but here I fell into this group of people who were nurturing, accepting, beautiful girls, you know, everybody kind of was, you know, doing the drugs of the day at the time. And, you know, we were 16 years old and experimenting. And I began to really have a passion for this. And I, I went, wow, this is great. I found an, an area to um, express myself. You yeah. know, I didn't know that, you know, self-expression is something I needed, but I began to want it more because I felt at home. I felt the stage was someplace that, you know, in all the craziness in the world and, 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 and growing up, this was a safe place. So I got a comedy partner and we literally began doing stand up together. And, you know, my, my loves were the comedy teams, Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello and, you know, and Martin and Lewis and, and Marx Brothers. So I always wanted to work with somebody. I thought it was far more interesting. I didn't want to be a, you know, a stand up who just stood there and told jokes. Hmm. So I wound up, you know, performing. We wound up performing uh, at the junior prom and at, you know, wherever we could, temples, churches, beach clubs, you know, whatever, whoever would hire us for, you know, no money and let us come on stage. And, and again, two things happened. I found the love of what I was doing and the, the girls were like, Oh, you're cute. You're funny. <laughs> I went, I'm like, Damn. I, I don't think I'm ever going to let this go. <laughs> and, and then from there I went to college and, and also in New York and CW post college for Long Island university. And I, majored in theater arts and got a bachelor of uh, fine arts degree. And, but I was on stage, literally 90 of my like 128 college credits were all in theater and a quarter of all my credits were in performance on stage doing roles. So I was on stage the whole time and really that cemented everything. I knew, you know, I could actually then begin to utter the words, you know, I'm an actor, you know, or I want to be an actor, you know, yeah. Took a while for me to own the phrase without the the wannabe in front of it, but that was really the beginning. You know, New York and eighteen, I left college and uh, headed to the city to uh, to be, begin a career. With comedy, though, as well. I mean, you really put yourself out there. It's like it's do or die, isn't it? With comedy, it it really is. You know, it's um, again. I went on to do a lot of stand up and studio warm up and stuff. We used to have a saying in the nightclub that someone was not smiling. And we would go, sir, just because you're not laughing doesn't mean that joke wasn't funny. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, it is kind of, it came easy, Dave. After a while, you know, I I was a real student of the game and I I knew what I wanted to do. And I, I, like anybody who wants to be successful at something, I, I studied it, you know. I could probably tell you every line in the movie, The Producers, you know, in and not the new one. I mean, the one with Zero Marcel. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. that was the turning point of my life. Is growing up in New York, there were heavy, you know, comedians. Jackie Gleason was a huge influence. Zero Marcel, you know, Oliver Hardy. And I thought, well, I can be not the quarterback type and not the athletic type, but I could still be an artist and entertainer, and I could be what I wanted to be, you know. And and I had a lot of great role models. Um, who I never met like like those people, and then a lot of great teachers who gave me chances even when I wasn't ready, you know, the opportunity to fail, which uh, one of my acting coaches from L.A. used to say, I want you to go up there and fail gloriously. <laughs> because it's only in those moments that you learn, you know. Yeah. 
you don't learn from the successes. You learn, as we all do, from the failures in our lives. It must be like a heart-stopping experience, though, to do improv, especially, you know, because by the very nature of it, you've got hardly any idea of what, you know, the, the, the other person or persons you're with on stage are going to say. How do, how um, do you deal in situations like that? Are there any sort of tips or secrets to improv? Well, yeah, there's just, there's two. Yes and. So what? no matter what they say to you, agree and add something to it. And then don't ask questions because that kind of slows the scene along. You kind of build this like you're playing a game of catch. I have the ball and I put something to it and I throw it to you and you add something to it and back and forth. But, you, you know, you do rehearse. I was kind of trained in the Viola Spolin games. She's the basically the mother of American improv. Second City was born out of that and Paul Sills, her son. And, and so I was really versed in theater games and that's where I, I got my love for this and understood that creating on stage it just wasn't haphazard you you, you didn't say uh, funny things hmm. you know the situation yeah. and again having the acting background the situation is what was funny you know uh, we later learned from teachers it was uh, ordinary people in extraordinary situations that's where both the comedy and the drama lives yeah and and again i was very lucky to be very early on one of the early members of the first amendment improv company in new york city in the 70s and when I found that, that was really the keys to the kingdom. You know, I found that not only was I good, I was fast, you know, and, and I was willing to take chances physically with, you know, flop myself around is, you know, probably the reason I have a bad back and leg right now is <laughs> one too many pratfalls in my lifetime. <laughs> but, you know, I, I worked with an amazing group of people there and, you know, you're only as good as your teammates, I've always believed. You know, being a big uh, pro sports guy, and, and not from the playing it, but from the loving the team aspect of it. You know, you're only as good as your teammate. And if you try and, you know, be a stupid superstar, you're n never going to be. But if you try and understand what the game is about and play the game to your best ability, everybody wins. Yeah. You know? So I look good because the guy next to me is committed to looking good and the, and the person next to her is looking good. You know? and, and again, having worked with amazing people whose names you'll never know, you know, because for one reason or the other, they didn't have careers or didn't follow the career. I was committed to it. You know, I, I'll tell you a brief story because I promise you, Dave, I'm never out of stories. <laughs> That's um, always good. Yeah. Um, I, in fact, two, three years ago, I went to my 40th high school reunion. But 20 years before that, I went to my 20th, and I was there, and I met one of the guys there. We were sitting having a drink, and his name was Dave Sperber. And Dave was this, at 18, this terrific Shakespearean actor. He was, you know, just intense. He wound up not doing it. He became a doctor, you know, a terrific doctor. But And I had done about, I don't know, my first three years in L.A., I had done, been lucky. I had done somewhere a dozen, 15 films you know, in a few TV shows. And we're having a drink, and he just looks at me, and he goes, Spellos, I always knew it'd be you. And I go, excuse me? He goes, I always knew it would be you. I go, what are you talking about? He says, the acting career. He says, I, I always knew it was going to be you. I said, Dave, what do you mean? You know, I was a hack. I was a comic. I, you know, I was a physical guy. He says, you were a great actor. He goes, no, 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 no. You wanted it more than anybody else. And... I thought, wow, 
I didn't know back then I wanted it more than anybody else. I just knew I wanted it, you know, to the extent that I wanted to follow my passion and my dreams. So it was very cool to have someone look back on your own life and tell you, I knew you'd be successful because you wanted this more than anybody else. Yeah. You know, I, and I, you know, Dave, I guess I did, you know, I, I wanted to be the man I said I would become. And that's the, one of the great things at this point in my life. I can look back and say, I'm the guy I wanted to become, you know, not in all aspects of life. You know, we have highs and lows and we do things right and wrong, but I wanted to be the actor. I wanted to be the guy in the movies. And, and I became the guy in the movies, you know? So it's, it's, again, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunities that were afforded me. And the fact that, you know, I played hard, you know, I went, <laughs> I, I went after it, you know, I, I gave myself on stage. There's nothing, I promise you, there's nothing more rewarding than whether it's 10 people or a thousand people cheering and applauding. And there's no, no silence more deafening as you're doing <laughs> something and you hear crickets and tumbleweed on stage, you know. So you've got to realize, though, when you take a chance, you, you move on. You, you let it go and you go to the next one. You just don't get hooked up on the result. And I think that's a great thing I learned in thousands of dollars in therapy, you know, is <laughs> I off the result, you know, and... and by playing hard, I found that the people respected that because you were, you, you were giving your all. It didn't matter if it worked or it didn't work in a given moment during improv. As long as you gave your all, that's what mattered. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Peter. It's, um, I think everybody has got sort of dreams and ambitions, but not everybody is willing to chase those dreams and ambitions. And it takes hard work, and you're going to have failures. But, you know, the end result is, you know, if you keep at it and you keep trying – it's going to pay off, you know, and again, you know, you're proof of this, that well, every, everything that you've achieved. I, I believe that, you know, you make sacrifices and you make a decision, you know, and sometimes you, here's, here's an old betting axiom, you know, and, and I'm a poker player from way back. Scared money never wins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and if you, if you bet scared, even with your life, you, you're not going to attain anything. You've got to be willing to gamble. Now, to the extent you want to gamble, that's your own choice. But you've got to roll the dice, you know, literally and metaphorically in order to be in the game. You know, and I was willing to do that. I mean, after I was uh, with the First Amendment in New York City, I met a man who is, his name is Jim Brownold, who was really the funniest man I, I ever met and became my comedy partner. And he was working as the production director. Um, production director, I think, you know, creating the commercials for WPLJ, which was the uh, ABC affiliate in New York. And uh, I started, we write sketches together, and we wound up going on the Jim Kerr Show, who's been a morning man here in, in mainstay of New York radio for 35 years. And all of a sudden, I was 26 years old, uh, working at a deli during the day to make, you know, money, or, or working at nights for the most part. And then I was putting comedy on the air in the mornings at 26. So, I, and, you know, creating characters and it really began this cycle of, you know, I, 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 I'm not good at this. I'm really good at this, <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, I say that with ego in check here because you got to own 
who you are in order to for other people to to respond to it you know you know it, it, you wouldn't go to a restaurant if the cook went well I, i'm an okay cook you'd head out the door yeah. <laughs> you know but you the same thing you wouldn't want to go to a play with an actor that wasn't continent or musician or artist whatever it is continent in their ability that's very true yeah you need that confidence um not that you're going to get it right every time, but that you're you're willing to take a chance and you're willing to fail gloriously. And and thank you, Jennifer Lehman, for, for teaching me that. Because <laughs> it, it must be it must be such. I mean, I can only imagine, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners can, what a rush it must be to get that instant feedback from an audience when you're standing up there on stage. Oh, it's 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 hypnotic. It's it's an elixir. You know, you say something and they wheeze and you think, wow, I, I guess I'm pretty funny, you know, or, or, or that was pretty cool. Or the opposite, you do something in a scene that's really dramatic and there's silence because they're involved, they're invested, you know. Here's the thing I learned, one of the things I learned, Dave, is when you go to a movie, right, and you see it and the picture really sucks, you think, <laughs> oh my God, was the acting so terrible i cannot believe how bad the acting is. but if it's terrific you don't say acting you say one wow I, w I was really moved by her i couldn't believe they killed him I, I i so wanted him to live you get invested in real life emotions in there yeah and and i think that's what an artist you know our job is to put the mirror up and reflect life and to comment on it you know depending upon where you work in front or behind the camera but i think everybody's job is to comment on the human condition and that's another area i feel very fortunate and grateful to be to have found a, a, a craft a, a, an avenue for the expression where i could say something about whatever it was the subject matter of the day was you know i i had a place to comment on life or comment on what was happening in my life or comment on what was happening on your life that's it. I think that's one of the advantages of um, one of maybe one of the few advantages of getting older is life experience, and it gives you more to draw on to talk about things and you know the experience that you build up over the years. I would always tell my students that because I've also taught for thirty, thirty-five years, and I say, "You want to become a great actor?" And they all go, "Yeah." I go, "Live." <laughs> I go, "What? Live. Have highs, have lows, have successes, have failures. Love. Be you know broken-hearted." live because guess what in 10 years you'll be a much better actor than you are today because you have this wealth of life experience to draw upon you know I, the stuff i was given at 18 the roles i was given on stage and plays i could only deliver what an 18 year old's uh, viewpoint was you know at 61 if i did those roles today it would be totally different because i have i have my whole life to draw upon you know the, the well is much deeper as yeah. you get older that's it. I mean, I always think, you know, the the younger generation think they know everything, but as you get older, you realize you know you know nothing. Well, yeah. Exactly. In my 30s, I friggin' knew everything. In my 40s, I knew some things. It, I got past 50, and I, I don't know why. <laughs> There's nothing I know. You know, I know, I, I, I know a couple of cool things and a couple of ways to make you laugh, but I don't really know anything. I just have my life to draw upon and, and what I want to know is what you know. Yeah. Because that, that's what's going to make me better 
is finding out how you've experienced life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well said. That's. I think that that's definitely the secret, rather than being so self-centered, which I think a lot of people are in the younger years. And then you change them as you get older. You you just want to know about other people. It becomes more about everybody that's around you. Well, I think it's the rite of passage of youth is that you want to you want to first of all you want to be all of us even at this age you want to be known you want to be recognized no matter what it is you want people to know who you are and in the twenties and thirties you you know you want to make a difference you want to make your mark you know you want to cut out what you think is your piece of the pie and in the fifties and the sixties you realize that the difference you make is is all you can do is make a difference in yourself because you're not going to be in charge of how anybody else feels. You know, so I long ago I stopped really caring what people thought of me. You know, and look, I was told at 18 by a, a young acting teacher who said, "Never read your press clippings, good or bad." <laughs> and it really is true because people can have opinions, and you're not going to be able to appease everyone. So you got to know when you're doing well and you got to know when you're not doing well and, and what can you then do to change it to get what you want and i think i think that is only a matter of age believe me if you and i had this conversation when you know i was 20 or 30 you wouldn't be hearing this right now because all i'd want is to you know where's my share <laughs> and, and now it's like well what can i give back yeah yeah that's the best way to be it really is mm-hmm. And you say you mentioned then about you know knowing when you do well and knowing when you don't do well. I've been dying to ask you this, Peter. <laughs> this, now I, I hope this is true. I read this about you. Now I'm really hoping this is true. And just to get, give it a little bit of flesh, give it a little bit of context. Um, my favourite genre of music is rock music. I've been going to gigs since I think '81 was the first gig I ever went to. So before you ask the question, I'm going to say yes, I did open for Twisted Sister. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm going to say of I've been to hundreds of gigs, hundreds of them. My all-time favorite gig ever is Twisted Sister in Manchester on the Come Out and Play tour. It it blew me away. I still wax lyrical about it now. And when I read that you um, was it you and Jim opened up for yeah. Twisted Sister, we were you know we had done as the morning comedy team. We would do a lot of personal appearances with the station, you know, and they would be at rock clubs. And we were doing this rock club now. We were, at the time we were doing a characters called the Stoned Ranger and Condo. We were, we were, you know, and, and you can only imagine where that went. You know, we were do-gooders in the old West who were really too high to do great. So we just did good. And <laughs> we were making a personal club and we were opening for Twisted Sister. Now, I promise you, they did not want to see us or listen to us. <laughs> in fact, some, some kid drunk from the audience yells, Hot fucking tuna! And I thought, wow, hot tuna at a, at a Twisted Sister concert. <laughs> this guy has no idea where he is. And, but yeah, we opened for D and the, and the boys, and it was very cool. Because <laughs> they hadn't attained the level of stardom. This was probably 1980. Okay, so they weren't as big as, as of course, they are now. And now you have D. Snyder on The Celebrity Apprentice. So it just yeah. shows you that show business goes in the strangest place. <laughs> But yeah, we op- we opened for Twisted Sister, and it really is. And I promise you, I did not wear spandex because <laughs> I'd look like the Hindenburg in spandex, you know. But but yeah, it was one of the things where 
you know, that's the other thing on, on my on my grave on my tombstone, Dave. Make sure you you chisel in, and he opens for Twisted Sister. You You've know? got to have that. You've got to. <laughs> I'm imagining that was that a pretty rough crowd. Then was it a tough audience for you? Oh yeah, you know, because they were there to get drunk and 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 see the band. You know, we were coming out. The DJ would come out, realize he was in way over his head, and he would bring Jim and I out immediately. And we go, son of a bitch. He didn't even do any warm up at all. You know, we're, we're coming out of here cold. And, and, but still, I was 26 and on stage and doing this stuff and living the dream, I assure you. Were you, in, were you into that type of music at the time? Did the band mean anything to you or was it, was it really just, you know, another gig for yourself? No, it, well, it meant something. I mean, Twisted Sister in itself at that time didn't mean anything, you know, uh, but I was a big rock and roll fan and, my first concert literally was um, Canned Heat and Mountain in a double bill at the Fillmore West. And wow. I, I saw Led Zeppelin on the, the third album tour at Madison Square Garden in 1970. So I was a fan of rock and roll. And, you know, and I was opening for a rock band in a night <laughs> at, at a club. Come on now. It's, and I'm 26 years old. How cool is this? I love it. When I read that, I thought, that's amazing. That is so amazing that you opened for Twisted Sister. Yeah. <laughs> True stories all, my friend. So what's what's it like then? You know, we've, we've talked about you being live on stage and the rush you get from that. What was it like the first time that you stood in front of a, of a movie camera? I didn't know what the hell I was doing because I was too big for the camera. You know, you just... The camera, how, how do I word this? You can't move a lot. Yeah. Next time you watch television, watch how still they are, you know, in, in, in the close-up shots. You can't really have the body language you can on stage. First of all, stage is an actor's medium and film is a director's medium. You know, no matter what I do, good or bad, they can make it look good or bad with editing and directing. You know, it's, they're the ultimate artist. I'm, I'm the paint to the painting. You know, I, I'm, I'm not the artist, but it was a thing that I had to learn. And, and, and I have to say this, bless their hearts. First, Jim Wynarski was the first one to give me um, a break in Hollywood in the sorority house massacre two, and uh, hard to die. And then Fred Owen Ray, who I first did Dinosaur Island with. And I wound up literally doing 35 pictures over the span of a dozen years with the two of them and probably 20 in the first five years. And because it was low budget, you know, and I was not being hired for pretty, I was usually being hired for scary or funny, you know, I was really allowed to cut my teeth on these things and learned about the camera and learned about and I would always, you know, no matter what I did, whether it was American Dreams for three years for NBC or Dinosaur Island, when I wasn't working, I, I wanted to be behind the camera. I wanted to see what they were seeing. I wanted to understand what was going on from their angle because that allowed me to understand what I needed to, to give them yeah. from, from, from my side of the camera. And again, blessed with a lot of, a lot of opportunities that I hopefully – got better with every role I did, or at least learned something new with every role I did. I mean, you mentioned there, I mean, the two names you mentioned with Jim Wynorski and Fred Olin Ray, 
I've been lucky enough to talk to them on, you know, the sister podcast of 60 Minutes with, which is 80s Picture House, and we've had both of those on as guests. And back in the day of, of VHS, it would be directors like that, they would be the names that I would look out for and whose films I would instantly rent. And then when sell-through came through, they would be the the directors whose films I instantly bought. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, it annoys me sometimes how what's... The B-movies, as they're called, do get a lot of flack from people, a lot of movie watchers who are more sort of invested in the big budget side of cinema. Whereas for me, I think there's more heart, there's more soul, there's more enjoyment in the films that that Fred and Jim made and continue to make, thankfully. Um, You know, there's big budget films from back then that are completely forgotten about, whereas, you know, the likes of Sorority House Massacre 2, for example, that you mentioned... It's, it's still, I bloody love that film still, you know, and I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a bunch of friends who love those films too. It's, you know, the way I was to acting, Jim and Fred are to filmmaking. They were young in their teens and why they wanted to make movies. You know, Jimmy and I both grew up in New York City, so we grew up watching Super Adventure Theater with Claude Kirshner and Clowney on Saturday mornings and, and you know, the... Earth versus Flying Saucer and the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And, and Fred was a filmmaker, and I believe he grew up in Florida and was making movies at a very early age. And it shows, see, to me, studios make movies now, but Fred and Jim are filmmakers. Yes. And their passion for what they do, and, you know, we're all, I don't want to name ages, we're all 50 plus, let's call it, you know. <laughs> I have no problem saying I'm 61, but I'll never give anybody else's age away. But. They're, they still have a passion for what they do, and when they call, and they called very often, they would say, "I got something for you, and I got a, I got a day, I got a week, I got two weeks, and no matter what it was, I went, "You bet. What do you need? What can I do? How can I help?" And and I made great friends. You know, again, as a kid in the in the early '60s, Johnny Carson was the place that we all wanted to be on on TV. He was he was the king of the talk shows, yeah. and. Yeah. He had a thing called the Mighty Carson Art Players, which was sort of his group of people that would come on when they needed to do a sketch and they would have them on. Well, to me, working with Jim and Fred was like being a member of the Mighty Carson Art Players or being back in a theater company. It was a group of people, whether in front of the camera or behind the camera, who were dedicated to getting it done, getting it done right, and getting it done fast. It was, you know, limited money. Everything was being shot on film in those days, and film was expensive. And they hired you a lot because you didn't need two or three takes. You know, we were doing 50, 60, 70 setups in a day sometime. And and you got you had to get it right so they can move on, you know, and not waste the film. And so it really was the training ground for me for all the high-budget and expensive stuff that I've done in my career was I cut my teeth because of Jim Winarski and Sorority House Massacre and Hard to Die and Jimmy and Fred co-directed uh, Dinosaur Island, which was probably the best two weeks I've ever spent in my life. You know? <laughs> and and all the other you know erotic thrillers and horror movies and comedies, they would always bring me in for whatever they had, whatever they needed me for. You know, I was the hired yeah. comedy. As I looked at myself as a comedy assassin. You know, <laughs> I'd come in, I'd kill him, I'd leave town. You know? 
And you had your first screen kiss with one of my favourite actresses from from then, and of course was a scream queen, as, as they were known back then too. You had, uh, I'm right in saying you had your first screen kiss with Michelle Bauer? I, I have to stop because I'm patting my eyes dry. I'm, I'm getting uh, <laughs> nostalgic. Michelle Bauer um, is a living doll, you know. There are th- three women I had, I had great admiration for. Uh, so many women, I mean. Brink Stevens, J.J. North, um, uh, Gail Harris. But my two favorites have always been Melissa Moore and Michelle Bauer. Now, I never kissed Melissa. <laughs> but if, Melissa, if you're listening, that doesn't mean I haven't thought about it. <laughs> and, and, and Michelle Bauer, who, as she was fond of saying, got my screen cherry because I had never kissed anybody before. And she was just, just a joy to work with. And uh, come on. Army guys, cave girls in bikinis, and Ray Harryhausen stop motion dinosaurs. Are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> if this is not the best time in show business, I don't know what is. And I, I had a great time with her. And, you know, I'll tell you, you know, you asked me about scared. I was never as scared than before I had a kiss Michelle on screen. Ah, okay. Because, you know, screen kiss, you know. You want to do well. You want to make sure your breath doesn't stink. You know, you, you you know, a thousand moments are going through my head. And for some reason, I thought the scene was shooting at night. So we're, after, we're sitting after lunch. And, you know, I probably had a cheeseburger with bacon and onions that day, <laughs> french fries. And we're sitting around. And so, and I, so I hear the first AD go, all right, scene 53 up next. And I go, what the hell? What? You know, and I realized that I, I had to go kiss Michelle, and <laughs> I was like, I was like Gleason. I was humming, 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 humming. <laughs> I was so worried, and she kind of just looked at me and smiled and just put me at ease. And then, you know, the easiest part was was kissing her. You know, and thankfully, we had to do a shot in Master. We had to, <laughs> we had to do a shot from my perspective. We had to do a shot from her perspective. And at the end of the movie, I get to kiss her again. And as I'm fond of saying, and they paid me. <laughs> That's you know, but she was, she's just a gem and a sweetheart. And if Michelle, you're, if you're listening, love you. Haven't seen you in years. And, and I hope you're doing great because it was, it was a joy. And again, Dinosaur Island was, was, you know, I worked with the Wachowski brothers on Bound, which was a, a fun, great movie. But Oh, that's a fantastic movie. Yeah. But, you know, I worked with, Jim Wynarski and Fred Olin Ray, they were the, they were the they were the film brothers, you know, to me, and and it was just a treat, and, and all the people involved in that movie, Richard Gabay, uh, Tom Shell, the late great Ross Hagen, Tony Naples, I'm trying to name everybody, Antonia Dorian, Griffin Drew, Nikki Fritz, uh, Debbie Dutch, you know, it was a who's who of of low budget films, and. And I was honored to be among them, you know, to be a part of that group. And I, and I, I always am to this day. And I, I swear to you, the stuff I get stopped for is not American Dreams, is not Yes Man, is not, you know, Men in Black 2. It's Orville Ketchum and Turbo <laughs> from Dinosaur Island. Believe me, again, I know I'm talking about death a lot today, but if the bus hit me, Dave, after this interview, you know, the, the small line in the newspaper would say, it'd say, B-movie veteran Peter Spellos died. <laughs> And you know what? I'm I'm honored to be known as a B movie veteran. 
Oh, you know? I love it. I absolutely love it when uh, people I get to, you know, I'm lucky enough to chat to like yourself, say things like that because it's, you know, it's that type of film that I grew up with and I, you know, all these years later, they still mean so much to to me and I've seen, you know, I'll hold my hand up, I, I go to the cinema and I watch big budget films and I've seen some great films at the cinema but the movie highlight for me so far this year was when Fred Olin Ray put on his Facebook page that he was selling the, the new Blu-ray uh, release of Hollywood Chainsaw Hawkers signed by himself so of course I had to buy that I mean that's like that's the highlight of my year movie wise so far You know, it, it's those little linchpins that keep us in touch with who we were as kids you know, and, and that's what I feel. You know, when I'm on a set with those guys, I feel like I'm a kid again, playing, improvising with, with, with young actors and, and and living the dream, you know. Again, you go you go to the big budget stuff, and I'm very grateful, and they paid me very well for a long time. But it's a little impersonal. You know, they put you up in the trailer. Sometimes they'll give you a basket of fruit. You know, it's... But no, this is like guerrilla filmmaking, and we would hang out all day together, and we'd eat two meals on the set together, and it really was like being part of the family. And I'm, I am honored to be considered part of their families. You know, you know, it just is. It's a, it's a gift, Dave. You know, I, I know I, I keep saying this word a lot, but I'm so grateful for the opportunities I had, and for the people I got to meet. You know, because I'm three years removed from L.A. now, living back in New York. And uh, now a day goes by that someone on Facebook doesn't remember me, whether it's for the big stuff or for my voiceovers and Transformers. But mostly is the fans of Orville and the fans of Dinosaur Island that always say, we love you, man. Thank you for doing this. And, and you don't, I learned early on, you don't know who you touch. I'll tell you a story about that. 26 working for PLJ and we, we had done some sort of a, a charity event and again it's very heady stuff I'm signing autographs I'm 26 years old I'm slicing roast beef in the evening and signing autographs in the afternoon and this one girl is kind of looking at me give me that the fish eye you know that dead one eye kind of <laughs> staring at you and she finally comes up to me and, and she goes I don't want your autograph and I thought it's okay yeah well it's okay no problem and then she takes a breath and she goes i just want you to know you make it easier to get out of bed in the morning and walked away and i was literally breath taken away crane shot pulling on top of me <laughs> you know cue the music and i realized wow 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 you never know who you touch you know and the same thing happened this past summer in the uk i they had me out as uh, one of the guests of honor at Auto Assembly, which is Europe's largest Transformers convention and usually takes place every year in Birmingham. Yes, yeah. That was an amazing, amazing event, over 900 attendees. And people of all walks of life, you know, came up to me, gave me gifts, and I always wanted to meet you, and you're a big part of my childhood, which absolutely makes me feel old when they say oh, you're a big part of my childhood. <laughs> But I was, so, again, so grateful because you never know who you touch. And, and all I want to do is give back to them. You know, all I want to do. And I hung out, believe me, 7 o'clock in the morning till 1 o'clock in the morning. If I wasn't, you know, in the convention room, I would see a group of them and go, can I have breakfast with you? Can we sit down together? Can I buy you a drink? Uh, though I didn't have to buy a lot of my own drinks. That's one of the perks <laughs> of doing this. But 
for my AA friends listening, whiskey and ice cream. That's all I have to say to you guys. <laughs> whiskey and ice cream. Um, so again, it's it's just amazing because you never know who you're going to touch. You know what? What did the old line from the honeymoons Jackie Gleason used to say? Not and be kind to the people you meet on the way up, because they're the same people you're going to meet on the way down. Very true. Yes. Uh, so I just try and be as as kind and as authentic as I can with everybody I meet, because it's people like yourself, Dave, that keeps me relevant in in, in a world that doesn't much consider me relevant anymore. I know. I've had rants in the past about the so-called celebrity that that is judged a celebrity these days that you know they don't do they don't do anything <laughs> whatsoever whereas people like yourself who who have worked for this they you know you've served your time you've 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 done all these things and it's it i don't know is is it an age thing with us peter that we're suddenly are we are we turning into grumpy old men or or is am i right when i say these people are not celebrities um you're both you're both right <laughs> um, both sides of your personality is correct. They're not celebrities, and, and we've turned into grumpy. <laughs> but I know the one thing that has really mattered to me more than anything else uh, is uh, being of service. You know, before I left L.A. and for a time when I first came back to New York, I'll tell you why in a second, I created theater companies that would do stage readings, and all we would do is charge admission and give all the money to a different charity every night, you know? And we raised, like, Five to seven thousand dollars in about a dozen performances in New York, and gave it away to different groups of charity. Um, I came back to New York and I gave up everything. I sold everything I had and gave up the career because my mom was diagnosed with dementia, and I knew I had to come back home. The minute she got sick, I didn't want to get a phone call one day from my brother, "Hey, mom's gone," you know. So I sold everything I had. I moved back to New York. I'm living in uh, White Plains, New York. We, we got her into a nursing home. Um, I see her two or three times a week. You know, she's beginning to lose all her memories. And, you know, it's she knows who I am, thankfully. You know, the day she looks at me and goes, Susan, I'll go, oh, I'm screwed. You know, <laughs> but I'm there and she's so grateful. And this time with her has been life-changing. I, and I would do it again a thousand out of a thousand times, Dave. The gift that I'm getting to, to be here at this time of my life. You know, this is the woman who believed in me, wiped my butt when I was little, dried my tears, you know, fed me, and then told me when I was 18, I don't understand your profession, but I want you to go do it and and live your life. And, and when I left for California in my mid-30s, she said, this is the saddest day of my life. You know, and I always said, I'm coming back someday, Mom. And 23 years later... I came back because whether she was realizing it or not, she needed me to be there. My brother, who's Jim, who's the greatest man in the world, you know, has been, was taking care of her financially when things kind of went south for me. And uh, I was, you know, very public about the problems I was having. And, and, and he was there to help me and always took care of her. But he's on the road a lot. And I knew she needed someone there. She needed someone who also could talk to her on a, on a regular basis. Yeah. So, you know... Between he and I, we take the greatest care of her. She raised two good boys. And uh, it's an honor, you know, because one day I hope <laughs> I hope when I'm in a wheelchair and, and can't take care of myself that someone's going to come visit me. You know? <laughs> no, really, I mean, you laugh, but it's, it's really the it's, truth. Yeah, definitely, definitely so. To see I mean, her he... laugh and, and to be able to give that back at this time of my life, that's what I want to do. I want to be able to give back for all the wonderful things that have been 
that people have given me in my life. It, it, oh yeah, I agree with every word, Peter. And you posted a, a lovely photograph on Facebook the other day of your mum uh, bowling, and you, it was a, one of those split photographs of her bowling now. Yeah. And you did the one of was was it in the fifties when she was? And you no, posted, that was that was nineteen thirty nine. Thirty nine. Oh my god! And it was it was such a beautiful photograph that you put up both of them side by side like that. She worked at Macy's when she got out of high school. In fact, she was one of Santa's girls in the 1939 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on the Santa float. You know, gorgeous Greek girl with long legs. And, you know, she she went through a lot of tough times in her own lifetime. And, and to be able to be there and to share it with the world. You know, I want to share. I want to share and remind people that if you don't realize what life is about, you better wake up before it's too soon. You know, I promise you, Dave, I'm not going to die with a lot of coulda, shouldas, and wouldas in my mouth. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I, I've always lived large, whether on stage or even in my private life. And I think it's important that we don't try and inspire people, but perhaps how we live will be inspiration to others to, to live similar and, 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 take care of the people around them that need taken care of. Yeah. I mean, that that photograph, I mean, it was, I mean, she, she was absolutely stunning too, wasn't she? Oh, yeah. You know, you saw that and it's like, and it, it, it was such a stark reminder for a couple of reasons too. Um, one, how short life is and you should make the most of it, how quickly time can go. And also it's, it's unfortunate. I think a lot of people see older people and they see them as an older person and they totally forget that they were once the age that they are now you know you know you it's 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 hard to get into people's minds that when they see the older person that well you they were once young and vibrant and doing all the things that everybody else is doing nowadays you know it's just your body ages but inside you don't i mean i know myself you know i'm going to be 50 this year i inside in my head i'm still a teenager as i'm sure you are too peter i'm 15 most days in my head <laughs> you know i put those people uh, pictures up for the nursing home people as well because i want them to not treat my mother as this 94 year old woman with dementia but i want them to see what this vibrant woman was so they have an understanding of why it's difficult for her did she you can't do anything by herself, whether it's eat or go to the bathroom or, you know, walk, you know, I want them to know that there was a life well lived beforehand. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's one of the things and you know, I, I hate to tie it into a publicity moment, but it's one of the things that I'm starting to do with this podcast called the aging badass a woman. I went to elementary school with who's a disc jockey in, in, in Northern California. And, the whole idea of this is to, there's so many people, Dave, like us past 50, who are either reinventing their lives or still living the life they've always dreamed or still dreaming about perhaps, can I, I'm getting old, can I live the life that I dreamed? And part of what we hope to do, and and again, we hope to have you on our podcast as well, is talk about, hey, you know, it ain't over at 50. Again, I'll give you one, another mom story here. 15 years ago, she had lung cancer surgery. She smoked for 55 years, and uh, it wound up taking out half her lung and all the cancer. She hasn't had a lick of it since, which is amazing. Believe me, Greek peasant stock. <laughs> but as she was going in, you know, and you know, sitting in the bed, and all these tubes were coming out of her, and, and God, you know, my emotions were 
are flushing on the surface. And I went, Mom, before you go in, I want to remind you something. She goes, what? I go, I want you to imagine something in your head. She goes, all right. I go, I want you to imagine you're a roast beef. And she kind of looks at me. I go, no, no, stick with me, Mom. I know you know I'm crazy. I want you to imagine you're a roast beef and you're in the oven and you're surrounded by potatoes and carrots and you're kind of pouring gravy over yourself. And there's a knock at the oven door and it's God. I want you to look God in the eye and say, I'm not done yet. Well, long story short, she comes out of surgery hours later. It was a success. She was going to heal. And the anesthesiologist comes over to me and goes, Mr. Spellis, i got to talk to you about your mother. And I go, well, is everything all right? He goes, no, no, everything's fine. But the strangest thing happened. I go, I go what? So just as I was putting her under and the, the drugs were taking effect, she grabbed my arm as hard as possible, looked me in the eye and said, I'm not done yet. You know? <laughs> And he said it was the funniest thing you ever heard. And I guess that's the, what I want to remind everybody, your listeners, me, you, and the people that we're going to do on our podcast called The Aging Badass. And I'll tell you when it's up and running and you can uh, put it on, on your website is, boys and girls, you're not done yet. And if you think you're done, you're done. So whatever it is you're not living, go after it because you're not done yet. And, uh, I know that I might not be working in the industry right now, but I'm doing—I'm I'm not done yet, and doing the best thing I—I I can with my life at this moment. You know, you know. I recently did a web series a couple months ago with a, a comic who I used to, used to work for me in New York. Now I'm working for him, so I, I'm still dabbling in it. But my life is about family right now more than anything else, and and I wouldn't have it any other way. That's it. Yeah, it's it's so good to hear that, Peter. It is, and uh, yeah, hopefully you know your mum's got many more years in her. You know, that, let, let's keep this roast beef going. <laughs> I think that's such a great, a great way of thinking of it. Absolutely, I'm not done yet. You know, and it really has become my 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 rallying cry. You know, you know, we talk about how do you stay relevant in a world that doesn't consider you relevant anymore. Yeah. You know, for the first time, I'm running into ageism and. and, and Things that I never expected to have. Like we said, we're 15 in our head. But you got to make yourself relevant. you got to make your own life relevant. Yes, exactly. You know? Yeah. You know, this is the defining moment of my life. You know, I, I thought a couple, I thought working with Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito was a defining moment. No, <laughs> no, no. This is a defining moment. This is, this is the man I wanted to become, you know, and, and you live your dreams. Pick, pick it, pick one, go in the direction of your dream. And if you don't like the dream, change direction it's 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 pretty simple yeah you know, it's, not, it's not easy but it's pretty damn simple yeah I, th I think the best things you know the the things you really want are never the easy ones but it's just sticking at it isn't it and and believing in yourself and going for it it, it is perseverance it's because you never know when it's over you know we've all lost friends in our lives and teenagers and 20s and 30s and i knew you know people didn't make it out of any of those ages and they didn't expect to, to go so quickly and neither the people around them, you know? So if you keep living, living the life you want, you're not going to, you're not going to have regrets. Yeah. Cause you know, for a lot of us, there are, there are more tomorrows than yesterdays, you know, or there the other way around And for the young, that's the way it is. But for us, there, I got more yesterdays than tomorrows. Mm -hmm. So I want to make each moment. I want to, I want to be where I am. Yeah. You know, and, and I want to make sure that I keep showing up in that respect. And 
again, I, I feel I feel really blessed to have uh, set a goal for my, you know, set a dream for myself, followed the dream, you know, and still am living through it, you know, through kind folks like yourself who uh, who remember, you know, you you love those movies because <laughs> you were seeing the fun we had. Oh God, yeah, it looked it looked so much fun. I promise you, it was more fun than that. <laughs> <laughs> And you, you mentioned you just mentioned Jack Nicholson and Danny DeVito and that. Have you ever been starstruck whenever you've met anybody? Sigourney Weaver. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, I did a movie called Heartbreakers with her, where I played a. I want you to watch it. I played a a a, a moving man in an art gallery. And I got to spend the day nose to nose with her flirting. And oh, wow. You know, Dave, I'll send you a picture privately and you can put it up on the webpage. Um, that would be fantastic. If, if you go on my Facebook page, you, you, you can scroll down on my photos and see it as well. But I'll, I'll send it to you. Right, will but do. All I kept thinking was, I'm working with Ripley. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and she was the most elegant, wonderful you know, I had just done a film with Jim Wynarski, um doing a Russian accent, and she was uh, doing a Russian accent in the film. So the first 20 minutes hanging out with her, we spoke in Russian accents to each other. And then just being able to sit there off camera and talk about theater and, and her career and ask her questions and, and talk about you know her husband who was producing theater in New York. I remember I asked her, after a while we had hit it off and I'd spent a day nose-to-nose -nose with her, I said, Sigourney, do you mind if I ask you just one question she goes sure i said in galaxy quest and then she, she kind of laughed and rolled her eyes i go no 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 stay with me on this i said at the moment of the film where you go ducks why is it always ducks i said i'm an old improv actor she, i said did you improvise that she goes, yeah we did that rehearsal and the director loved it we kept it because it's it's just brilliant moment you know so again that was that was the most starstruck I was. Here is this tall, beautiful, elegant woman, talented as the day is long, and I get to spend the morning and afternoon flirting with her. How bad is that? You know, <laughs> you know does my life suck, Dave, or what? You know? <laughs> and, and she looked absolutely amazing in Galaxy Quest too, didn't she? Oh, my God. You know, kissed. You know, I might have been killed by Lois Lane, but I've been kissed by Michelle Bauer, and I flirted with Sigourney Weaver. So... <laughs> <laughs> a really good lie. <laughs> I can hear the cries of many male listeners already saying how lucky you are, Peter. Yeah, please send your your cards and letters to Dave, care of the sixty minutes, <laughs> and I'll answer each and every one of them. And, and tell your listeners they can check me out on Facebook or at Peace Fellows on Twitter, and and I, I you know, I, I speak to everybody, so feel free to contact me, and uh, and and keep the conversation going. You know? Oh yeah, definitely, and I will on on our website. I'll give the details at the end of the show. All the links of how you can find and follow Peter online will will all be on there. And yeah, you know, I can attest that you know, the, Peter's well worth following. And yeah. you do, as you say, it's great. You know, when you know people like yourself that I've watched for years, and then you know, I'm lucky enough now to get the chance to have a chat with you. And through the beauty of you know this digital age that we're in now, and social media and we can ask questions and fans can get in touch with people that they've loved for years and it's so good when people like yourself take the time 
to answer fans' questions and, and, and share photographs and stories from times gone by as well. You know, as Sandra Bernhardt used to say, without you, I am nothing. You know, without you watching these movies, I might as well create in a vacuum. You know, it's a symbiotic relationship, and there is no, there is no me without you, pal. You know, it, it really works that way. And, and I think it's, I truly, truly believe it's an artist's duty to give back. You know, we are gifted with certain talents, and it is it is our damn it, it. You must do it. You must give back to those who have given so much of their time and passions. Because I meet the most amazing people from all walks of life who are so passionate about anime and films and B movies and you know music and and it's it's just amazing because you. You can live in a bubble. You know, California taught me a couple things, but one of them, it's it's a bubble, you know, and it's very small, and you can be very insulated out there. But being a New Yorker and back being back in New York and hanging with my friends that I grew up with that I've known for 50 years, it's a whole different world. You know, funny, I always say to them, people in California knew the man I became, but my friends back here know the boy that I am, you know, and... Yeah. and and that, going back to what we said earlier about you want to be known, you know, having the circle of friends, you know, I, we have a dear friend we found after 40 years, we thought he was dead. He went into homes, he was in shock treatments, he's a schizophrenic, and we reconnected through his parents, we found them, and now nine of us from our high school group get together once a month and take him out to dinner. And you want to talk about love and gratitude. You know, he says things like, man, I never forgot about you guys. And we're like, holy shit, you never forgot about us. You know, you know, we never forgot about you. So once a month I'm sitting with my, you know, with my buddy. I'm doing a podcast with a girl I went to elementary school with, my junior high school and high school buddies. We get together once a month and all have dinner and take Glenn out to dinner. And it's, it's not to say, you know, I'm not living, I'm not getting fruit in my trailer anymore, but, you know, <laughs> but my soul is, is is more full than it's ever been yeah that's 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 the best thing to feed i think isn't it is your soul that's the only thing to feed the rest of it is a bottomless pit you can never really feed it yeah fame and fortune is like a well that you can't hear the coin hit the water in it it, there's just no way you can you can fill it up but what you can fill yourself up with is excuse me love and gratitude oh yeah I mean, this is why I'm so looking forward to the Aging Badass podcast as well. I think it's it's such a great idea for a show. Um, it wasn't mine. It was Nina Price's. And, and, and I was very happy that she asked me to be on board because, as you can tell, Dave, I, I can be a little chatty. You know? <laughs> it's always an advantage with doing a podcast if you can yeah. talk, isn't it? <laughs> you know, and hopefully interesting enough for your listeners, but, you know. I'm I'm a man who with stories, and I think we all are. I think you got to remember that mine aren't any better than yours. I, this is this is where I've walked. You know, I'm more interested in your stories than I am my own because I want to know what you've seen. What what have I missed in life? Because I I don't know. I, I know nothing, pal. I I don't know anything. I just know the the path I've walked. One thing I do know is you you were in an episode of my all time favorite comedy show, uh, <laughs> Marriage with Children. Yeah, <laughs> you were Elmo. I played Elmo. I played, I played Ron, uh, Clint Howard's cousin, who <laughs> had to wear a bracelet around his ankle because he could. He was on, you know, house arrest, so he only might drive two miles in a circle. 
<laughs> that they were great. You know, I'm telling you, I, I I did the rehearsal. Everybody was very cool in the cast. But Ed O'Neill hadn't said a, a bloody word to me the whole time. And we did the first because um, you usually film two shows in early and a late, and they kind of splice together the best of both. Um, we did the early one, and I'm hanging out at the craft table, and finally he come, he actually walks over to me. He goes, "You're funny." <laughs> I go, thank you. He goes, welcome to the family. I go, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. So it was, God, it was one of those another badge of courage on you, you know. You know Ted, you know, Al Bundy thinks I'm funny. Well, you know what? <laughs> I can sleep tonight, boys and girls. And I worked with Katie Segal and Amanda Bierce, and they were they were just terrific. They were, just, you know, they were a blast to work with. Oh yeah, I mean that is such a great show. I I love that show. I've watched it so many times. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. Careful, Dave. You never know where I'm going to turn up. That's <laughs> <laughs> I know because there was. It took me back to my again to my video days when I saw you. You were in Giver, not to be confused with MacGyver, but you were in oh. Giver, and I thought, oh my god, I used to love that film. I cherished it on video. Imagine the four henchmen were myself, Jimmy J.J. Walker, Spice Williams, and Michael Berryman. Talk about <laughs> four people who will never be on the screen again together. <laughs> But you know what? I worked with Steve Wang and Screaming Mad George, unbelievably creative, talented minds. Oh hell yeah! And that was a blast. I, you know, that's another one of the franchises I fell into. You know, and I, I'm part of that history. You know, uh, it doesn't get by me how lucky I've been. Believe me, that was a, that was that was a good time. Oh yeah, it must have, it must have been such a good time. And again, you know, if, if listeners, please, I mean, just just go to IMDb put Peter's name in and just scroll through everything that he's been in and it's it's just like incredible it really is be afraid be very afraid <laughs> I'll send you a picture of, of Jimmy Walker and I rapping a still from the movie oh right okay this sounds interesting <laughs> <laughs> what would you do here's, here's one for you then Peter Go ahead. If, if you could if you could only give people one film for them to look at that you're in um what would you what would you say what would you recommend which is kind of tough considering you've been in so many as well or including tv series as well let's put that you on screen well i can i give you one tv and one film yes of course you can um i did Three seasons of American Dreams uh, for NBC, where I played the director of the American Bandstand show. It, was, it took place in Philly in 1963. Jonathan Prince, Steve Semmel, uh, the producers, Jonathan Prince created it. It really was the greatest time of my life because I got to do 22 episodes the first season, and then six and, and, and two after that, and then subsequent seasons. But it was a show with such heart and soul and really spoke to the time that I grew up in. You know, I was, I was uh, nine years old when Kennedy was shot in, in 63. And this takes place in Philadelphia to a family grown up and dealing with the changing of times and the, the death of Camelot. And my part was fun. Cause again, I'm hired for the comic relief. So I got to be Gus, the director of bandstand. And we had all these amazing talented people whose names I had never heard of before, like Usher and Beyonce and, and Jewel. And we had this great, great cast and crew and amazing directors coming in that week. So, and I got to do my Christmas show, 
You remember growing up that every TV show had a Christmas episode? Oh, yes, yeah. One of my dreams was to do a Christmas episode of a TV show. And I got to do my Christmas episode of American Dreams where they actually had me in a Santa's hat. And it, so that was really the watermark for my television career. And it's a dead heat for movies. And, you know, for all the great things I've been able to been a part of, be honored to be a part of, it is Sorority House Massacre 2 and Dinosaur Island which were my two very favorite times on film. I mean, I was working with guys who loved what they did, who didn't take life so seriously, who realized that they were living the dream as well, met the coolest, coolest people, you know. They were, you know, when you do a big budget thing, you kind of sometimes the cast sits over here, the grip sit over there, makeup sits over there. When you're working a B movie and you're working eight, you know, 16, 15, 18 hour days together, we all sit together, we all laugh together, we all have a beer together. That was the best part. I mean, really, you know, and thank you, Jimmy and Fred again. The Sorority House Massacre 2 and Dinosaur Island are my two most fun times on film. <laughs> you know, and that even includes working with Will Smith in, in Men in Black 2, you know. That was terrific, but hanging out with my buds and, and, and getting to play hard and hardy. <laughs> and, and believe me, it's those guys, and that's the reason you're speaking to me. You know, it's those films that put me on the map. And the subsequent work I wound up doing with John Landis and, and the Wachowski brothers, they all knew me because of B-movies. Yeah, yeah, true. Very true. So there's a love out there, and I know not only your, your fans, but your friends, you know, there's a, just a love for that stuff. It was, it was simpler times, Dave, and it was, it was, it was great fun. And I'm, I'm honored to be a part of, of, of that, of the history of this all. Oh yeah. I think I speak for all the listeners as well. You know, we're, we're honored that, you know, you're part of our history and our movie watching history too. And, you know, we're thankful for all the parts that you've played and, we continue to watch them. You know, I can't. I, I'm going to have to watch Dinosaur Island again. I haven't seen it for a while. <laughs> yes, you are. I'm going to have to rewatch that again now. <laughs> well, I've got. I'm, I'm well aware that we, we're over the time that we said we're going to do. I think first of all, I think I'm going to have to get you back on the show, Peter, and we're going to have to I go love... through. We're going to have to go through your movies. We really are. I've got a thousand stories I haven't told yet. I know we're going to. We're going to definitely have to do a part two. I have got before you go though. I've got two more questions for you. A couple Please. of things I want to bring up yeah. is um, you, the voice work that you've done for anime, etc. How I mean, what sort of a challenge does that present you compared to when you're in front of the camera, just just you know, just projecting via your voice? Well, uh, one thing I consider is I'm an actor, but the voice actors I work with are far better than I am. They were amazing people. You know, I never considered myself a voice actor per se. I was an actor who did voice work, but you know, the people who have been doing this for decades are unbelievably amazing. You know. I'm good at a couple of voices, you know, usually some a gravelly kind of guy and a little New York guy, and and I'm easy to work with. I don't have an ego in that arena. If I don't get the line in one take, I tell the director, give me a line reading, however you want it, you know. I get to show up in sweatpants and a baseball hat, <laughs> you know, so, so that's always good. And, and again, that was another area, and we'll talk perhaps next time on this. It was uh, yeah. not much of an adjustment, you know. You just... The hardest part is for me was 
getting really good at the lip syncing, you know, and, and I had a, a certain proficiency for it. And that's why they kept using me and, and a, a very distinct voice. It's not like some of these guys who were unbelievable and masters of voices, you know, I got a couple of three characters that I can do. And I usually got hired for that. And that's why they brought me in again, sort of like going back to the comedy assassin. They knew what I could do. And the first two auditions I had for this stuff, I booked uh, recurring roles and co-starring roles. So I kind of fell into it and was, you know, forever grateful. Believe me, I wound up being in Transformers. And now I'm part of that community that is just, has just amazing people. That's where my, that's where my Welsh friends are. You know, a shout out to all my Welsh mates, to Matthew Grant and Simon and Ian and, and, I know I'm forgetting other people who are going to hate me for mentioning <laughs> my name, but but it's just terrific. I'm uh, I'm, I'm honorary UK. They call me an honorary uh, honorary Brit, and I and I wear that badge well. And if it wasn't for anime and and voiceover work, I I wouldn't have blood pudding and bangers and mash with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> classic meals, <laughs> they are classic. Hey, you know you know how hard it is to keep this weight up, Dave. I got to work at that. <laughs> One last thing for you, Peter. You're, you, yourself, and your brother, Jim, you're um, published authors as well that people may well not know. You know, it was about, uh, I, God, I've lost track of time, but maybe eight, nine years ago, we co-wrote a book called 99 Fabulous Food Websites You Can't Eat Without. And we just, you know, we're foodies. We both cook and, and love food and had a passion for it and figured this would be a fun thing to do. And, and you know, if your listeners want to check it out, they can go on the Amazon and, and, and pick it up and, and, and drop me a line that they got it. But, you know, a lot of the websites by now, 10 years, or some of them might be obsolete, but it gives you a little background. We put some recipes in there and stories about growing up. And, and briefly, I'll tell you one more thing. There's the greatest hot dog in the world. It's on the corner of 86th Street and 3rd Avenue in New York called Papaya King. And I was out of trip there about a, a eight months ago into New York and I was in the neighborhood and I go, well, I got to go to Pike Pike and that's my old neighborhood. I got to go have a Frank and cause we wrote about it in the book. Yeah. You know, we birthed like the 10 best meals of our lives. And one of my best meals was, you know, a, a hot dog with mustard and, and onions and I put medium papaya at papaya King. Well, I walk in and I look and on the wall, they have laminated reviews and they have the cover of our book laminated. Oh wow! With the with the little blurb I wrote about Papaya King. Now this is the place that my dad used to take me to when I was younger for hot dogs. This was our this was our go to hot dog place, and now I'm immortalized in the onion stained walls of Papaya King. <laughs> so if, if listeners, if you ever get to New York City, Papaya King on the corner of 86th Street and Third Avenue, and if you don't like them, I will send you the money back. For the money you spent. <laughs> oh, now it's funny you should say this, Peter, because this summer, uh, I'm uh, myself uh, and my good lady are planning a trip to America, and one of the places we're hoping to visit is New York. Oh well, then, then you and I were having hot dogs at Fire King. There's no two ways about that. I'm I'm going to hold you to that. Then, if we get to New York this summer, I I hope to share a hot dog there with you. I, you better. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Well, listen, Peter, it's, it's been absolutely superb, as promised. I mean, I'm sure the listeners, again, will agree. We've, we've got to have you back on for part two. 
any any time, Dave. You're terrific. I, you know, and all the people that work with you. Um, I don't know if I should say real names or their no, <laughs> but you know, um, Spanky Spanky Sparkle is that her name? On the Spanky Spangler. Yes. Spanky Spangler. I know I love you, though we haven't met yet. You know. <laughs> So no, no real names, only nom de plume. <laughs> and it was, you know, I tracked you guys down because I saw that you had interviewed Jim. I thought, well, this are, seems like a couple of cool blokes to talk with. And she was great and did, did me the hookup, you know, and and fabulous. You know, I, again, it makes me feel like I'm in the UK just for a couple of, couple of three minutes here. Oh, it's like I said, you know, if if ever you get across here, you come into Wales, Peter, you know, our door's always open for you. Oh, I will, and you guys have been great. Thanks, you know, especially to your listeners, Dave. Um, thank you for listening and, and caring about what we do and being fans and, and follow your dreams. You, you ain't done yet, boys and girls. Remember that. Oh, no, no way. And again, I'll repeat for for all the listeners, if you go to our website, I'll give the details of that at the end of the show. Uh, everything you need to know, all the links for following Peter, all the, the, the stuff to do with the Aging Badass podcast, we'll start putting all the links up to that when that comes up online. Um, Peter's Facebook and Twitter and all this kind of stuff, just please visit the our website. All the details will be there. And just for the benefit of, uh, just for the this podcast episode, Peter, we will say goodbye, but please stay on the line and we'll have a little chat after we, we go off air. Um, but please, th- again, thank you. I knew it would be, I knew it'd be a pleasure. I knew it'd be a laugh. And you, I don't think I've ever laughed so much recording <laughs> one of these episodes. So thank you very much for that. You've made my evening. You really have. Thank you, Dave. And I'd be happy to come back anytime you need. Oh, you can count on it. You will definitely be back. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Peter. Take care. And there we are at the end of another show, and wasn't he a great guest? Wasn't he an absolutely superb guest? So many amazing stories, and I can't wait to get him back on the show and carry on listening to some of those stories. I mean, there's so many films, uh, if you go to his IMDb listing, like I said at the start of the show, there's so many on there that we never even touched on. So it's going to be brilliant to get him back on again in the future and uh, hear stories from all of those, as well as everything else. Uh, Hopefully we can catch up on those stories um, after I've met him this summer. We've still got fingers crossed that that's going to happen. Meet up in New York, have a hot dog. Come on. What a birthday treat that's going to be for me. Uh, So I'll keep you all updated on that. Also, please visit um, the website. I'll give you the details in a moment because the podcast notes will have all the the links, the ways that you can find and follow Peter online for his Facebook and Twitter and so on. And there'll be some photographs. He's been very kind since we recorded the show. He's emailed me some photographs. I'm going to put them up in the podcast links too. So please take a few minutes, visit the site and read the podcast notes for this episode. And you can find the website if you go to uh, 60minuteswith.co.uk. That's numerical 60, not an alphabetical, excuse me, not an alphabetical one. Uh, the same applies for the Twitter as well. It's at 60minuteswith.co.uk. You can also email us here at the show. You can uh, email us via contact at 60minuteswith.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Thoughts about the shows we've done so far. Um, iTunes reviews and ratings also gratefully received. Thank you very much. They do help. Uh, in the quest to get more guests on the show and you know if if the guest's anything like peter 
come on, you're all in for a treat. It's going to be worth spending a few minutes just leaving an iTunes review, please. Um, yes, yeah, so that, that's it. That's it for this time. Uh, there's already some interview shows planned, so please keep your subscriptions active. Uh, there's also the usual uh, entertainment shows with both myself, Chris and Ramrod, uh, where we talk about films that we've watched, video games that we've played, books that we've read, anything that's entertainment related. We talk about that once a month, too. So it just leaves me now to to say whoever you are, wherever you are, thank you so much for listening and we'll be back again very soon with another show for you all.